Hey, thanks for listening to our Life Church Utah podcast. We exist to lead the people of the valley to be more like Jesus. We are located here in Salt Lake City, Utah, and you can check us out online at lifechurchutah.com. Wanted to let you know just a, a little bit here about the, the series that we are in, uh, Romans, what it means to be Christian. And you might say, well, pastor, we are talking a lot about the same stuff, right? Because every single week, it, it's kind of revolving around the same central theme, but it's actually, uh, Paul is brilliant in the way that he is uh, writing the book of Romans or the, the letter to the Roman church, because what he's doing is he is going to great pains and great lengths at the beginning of his letter to make sure that that early church has in position the right belief, and so he's hitting the, the, just the belief in Jesus and what he did, coming at it from different angles. And today is no different because he does want us to have at the very center of what we do the right belief. And as Paul continues to kind of hammer on this theme, uh, that our faith, what we believe and our trust in God leads us to act a particular way, leads us to act in a way that reveals him and brings glory and honor to him. And so that's why he's spending so much time dealing with this. And really for the next couple of weeks, as we walk through this, we're going to hear more about how Paul is just kind of picking at this big idea of what do we believe and why do we believe it? And uh, here's a good question. And uh, we're going to talk a little bit about the character of God. What is God like? What is God like? Um, it's interesting to, to observe how God has been portrayed uh, in the media and in, in movies and things like that. And so I thought I would take a trip down memory lane. Um, I don't know if anybody here uh, would remember this from 1936. Anybody remember this from 1936? Um, this was a, uh, a movie called uh, The Green Pastures. And this was the first black portrayal of God on, in, uh, in, in cinema. And this was a Rex Ingram, and it was a, a kind of a highly acclaimed film, uh, a lot of controversy associated with it, but the very, very first uh, black uh, god that was portrayed in the media. Uh, next one, 1968, Groucho Marx. Anybody remember Groucho Marx? Uh, he was, this is before my time as well, by, by a little ways. He is God in the movie Skidoo, and this is how they describe God in the movie Skidoo. The cigar-chomping drug dealer with a pale complexion and a painted black mustache wearing a bright blue jacket. That's how they describe God in Skidoo. That's awesome, right? Oh, yeah, whatever. Um, George Burns, 1977, Oh God. And you remember that movie? I do remember that movie. I do remember uh, seeing that movie, right? And uh, so there, uh, the crabby old forgetful God who's a bad speller and makes it rain in cars. <laughs> That's... <laughs> Oh, well, that's, that's what happened. That's what it was right there. Monty Python. <laughs> Quest for the Holy Quest for the Holy Grail. Okay, that's, uh, that's there. Um, God's been portrayed by Gene Hackman, Alanis Morissette, Whoopi Goldberg, who can forget Morgan Freeman and Bruce Almighty, right? <laughs> Val Kilmer voicing God in, Prince, in The Prince of Egypt, which, fantastic movie. So, uh, so obviously, Hollywood gets it wrong on lots of accounts, <laughs> right? Not just the people who are portraying him, right? That's not the point. It's how this God of the Bible is portrayed. Charlton Heston played God as well. I don't know if you knew that or not, but anyway. Um, so all of this stuff about God, he is often capricious, forgetful, angry, vengeful, sometimes winsome and humorous. Oftentimes in the way that God is des uh, described in movies is he's just like us, only a little bit more, 
right? That that's kind of how it's described. And he's, you know, kind of connects with us as the same character traits as us. Uh, he has emotional problems and bad habits and, and all of that. But is this really who God is? Obviously, no. <laughs> right? And yet within our culture, these images and these pictures, they become how people start to picture God. And there's a problem with that because God is so much more than any of that. So much more. And we do a great disservice uh, to him. So what is God like? And why is that important as we dig deeper into this series on Romans and what it means to be a Christian? Well, to grasp um, what God is like helps us to better grasp for what is vital and uh, for our lives today and how and why God, God acts the way that he seems to act to change our lives and to transform us. Why, why does God even bother with us? Have you ever thought about that? Why does, why does God even bother with us? Uh, how many uh, were, were sin-free in the last month? Anybody sin-free in the last month? All right, all right I don't see anybody good. <laughs> right? Why would God even bother with us? So Paul's concerned in Romans chapter 3, and if, I'm going to invite you to go ahead and turn your Bibles to uh, Romans uh, chapter 3. Um, he's concerned in Romans chapter 3 with the, the early church having a better understanding of the characteristics, some of the traits of who God is. Um, in Romans 2, last week, we talked about God's kindness, his generosity, his patience, his tolerance with us, and the fact that that kindness is, is what leads us to repentance. And in chapter 3, he gives us another aspect of the character of God that takes center stage. And we look back at this particular attribute as we're going through this, we need to uh, go a little bit deeper into the history of Israel before we get to this chapter, uh, chapter 3. And in fact, all the way back to the beginning, I know I go back to the Garden of Eden a lot in messages because it is so important for us because this is the starting point for us as the people of God. This is absolutely the starting point of a relationship with God is really grasping and understanding what happened in the garden. And so um, in the Garden of Eden, after Adam and Eve ate the fruit that they weren't supposed to eat, God pronounces that there are consequences of that disobedience. And the Bible says that Adam and Eve were expelled from the garden. And in fact, an angel with a flaming sword was placed in front of the entrance to the garden so that they would no longer have access to the garden, which at the center of it had the tree of knowledge of good and evil and the tree of life, right? Um, but this uh, exile from the garden, and I'm going to call it an exile because if you've read the end of the book, you know that the garden is back open to us in the, at the end of uh, Revelation. But so this exile that they're in is not without a promise. God just didn't send them out on their own and say, well, go deal with all this stuff yourself. He gave a promise in Genesis chapter three that one day at a future time, the offspring of the woman would be the one who would defeat the serpent, the very serpent that deceived Adam and Eve, that, uh, that the offspring of the woman would defeat this enemy. Bible says he would uh, kind, of, kind of bite at the, nip at the heels of this offspring, but that this offspring would crush the head of the serpent. So that's like complete and total victory over that. And so then this, this promise forms the foundation for what we see in the rest of the Old Testament through people like Noah 
and Abraham, who we're going to talk a lot more about next week, but Noah and Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and, you know, on down through all of these patriarchs of the Old Testament, there's this thread of this promise that God is bringing to fruition through a chosen group of people. And that was Abraham's offspring, which uh, become the Jewish nation. And through all of this, um, one of his central attributes is God's faithfulness. This is it. God is faithful. This is not just an attribute of God, but this is the essence of who God is. That this God is, fa- like, if you were to look up a definition of faithful, God should be the very, very first thing, because this is who he is. It's not something that he portrays. It is who God is, as he is absolutely faithful. Deuteronomy chapter 7, verse 9, and this is way back in the Old Testament. He says, uh, so realize that the Lord your God is the true God. The faithful God who keeps covenant faithfully. I love it. There's no way to describe it except to keep using the word faithful, right? The faithful God who keeps covenant faithfully with those who love him and keep his commandments to a thousand generations. In Numbers 23, God is not man that he should lie or a son of man that he should change his mind. He has said, and will he not do it? Or has he spoken and he will not fulfill it? God is faithful. He does what he says he's going to do. And so promises are given throughout the Old Testament of a relationship that the creation can have with him. Um, God doesn't have to work at being faithful. As humans, I think we have to. We we have to work at this and kind of has to be front of mind to be faithful. God doesn't have to work at it. Uh, Faithfulness is this essential part of who he is. God will not fail. Never. What God has spoken will come to pass. The words he has spoken in his word, they are true and they are trustworthy. They are faithful for us to live by. So when we get to the New Testament, the promises of the Old Testament begin to be revealed in the New Testament through one particular person. And this is the person, Jesus Christ, who is the son of God, fully God, fully man. Again, we can't fully grasp what that means for us and how that all works. But this promise that God spoke all the way back in Genesis chapter three took thousands of years to come to fruition. And now we get to Jesus. And what we find out is that Jesus is the fulfillment of this promise. That it is Jesus who is the one who was nipped at the, uh, at the heels by the enemy ended up giving his life, and it seems like that Jesus' life being forfeit was the end, right? Nothing was there uh, for him to be victorious over. There doesn't seem to be an answer to any sort of faithful promise that God gives. And yet Jesus raises from the dead, basically crushing the head of the serpent, dealing with death, hell, and the grave. And we sing about it today, right? We have freedom from the grave because of what Jesus did. Now we all die, we know that, that that's inevitable for us unless Jesus returns before that point. But death does, does not have a hold on us because death did not have a hold on Jesus. And so death is not the end of our lives. In fact, it's just truly the beginning of a completely new experience of life in the presence of God. And so it is this that Paul is speaking to the church in Rome and it becomes very clear in chapter three. Um, 
The letter thus far has led us to realizing there's a tendency for humanity to choose disobedience and self over God. That's the end of chapter one, all through chapter two, right, is this idea that, that we want to choose something other than God. Given our own, uh, we will be disobedient. If we are on our own, we're going to choose wrong. But God is at work behind the scenes, raising up a people that will represent him. In the Old Testament, that's the Jewish uh, Jewish nation in covenant with him. Even into the New Testament, the, the Jewish nation is in covenant with God. And Jesus changes all of that on the cross. But the Jews at the time had done this incompletely, and probably just like we do as well, incompletely representing God uh, on this earth. But there are still promises associated with being a Jew, and I don't want this to get complicated, but this next passage of Scripture can seem like it's complicated on the surface, but it's really, I don't think it is uh, as we walk through this. So there's promises associated with being a Jew, not the least of which is the inheritance of the Old Testament promises that God gave to them that God would always be faithful. He says this covenant with Abraham in particular is irrevocable. I'm going to make sure, God says, I'm going to make sure that this happens. I'm going to make sure I follow through on this no matter what happens. So does this give the Jewish people a pass? Because God said, I'm always going to be faithful to you no matter what. Does this mean the Jewish people are not then responsible for the way that they live and the way that they represent God? Some in the early church felt that this was the case. And that's why Paul was going back last week, you know, do not judge because you're doing the same thing. The covenant, the, the covenant was very different right now because of Jesus. Um, because they were Jew, uh, Jews, they were chosen and that promise was, was enough according to some of them and Paul sees things differently. And so we pick this up in Romans chapter three, verse three and four. What then, if some Jews did not believe, does their unbelief nullify the faithfulness of God? Absolutely not. Let God be proven proven true and every human being shown up as a liar. Okay, so let me explain this verse here and then another one that uh, that Paul writes uh, right after this. So the Jews were the chosen people of God to reveal God to the world, that the world was to be blessed through them. If they were unfaithful in doing this, does it mean that God is not faithful? No, because God is going to be faithful. And so the line of logic is um, this faithfulness of God, I'm sorry, this faithfulness of God is made even more powerful since there's no reason for God to be faithful. Okay, do you understand that? Okay, so because they were unfaithful and God was still faithful, it reveals his glory. Okay, because he's always going to be true to his word. So then the next thing that Paul writes is this, verse five. But if our unrighteousness, if, if our inability to show the glory of God, right, if it demonstrates the righteousness of God, what shall we say? The God who inflicts wrath is not unrighteous, is he? And he, Paul says, I'm speaking in human terms. Absolutely not. For otherwise, how could God judge the world? For if by my lie, the truth of God enhances his glory, why am I still actually being judged as a sinner? And why not say, let us do evil so that good may come of it? Right, so this is what was was happening within the early church. They were chosen people, and some of them were saying, it really doesn't matter what we do, because if we do bad things, 
God forgives us and that reveals his glory any, uh, all the more because, man, look at his faithfulness to all the promises even though we are doing bad things, right? And Paul is saying, uh, no, <laughs> this, this doesn't make any sense anywhere and yet somehow as humans, we really like that, Right? And so some people were accusing Paul of saying this. Some people were saying that's all that the church is, is easy believism. It's all about grace because they can do anything they want and God still forgives them. And some people taking it the next level saying, you know what? I'm going to keep my testimony fresh. <laughs> I'm going to go out and do lots of bad things so I can ask God to forgive me and show his glory. <laughs> right? No, it doesn't work, does it? Right? It doesn't work on all sorts of levels. Um, some might say, you know why, just the other day I sinned, but it was to show the glory of God. I, I've heard things, maybe not that blatant, but I have heard things along those lines. God's going to forgive me anyway. Right? God's going to forgive me anyway. Um, so Paul then puts the hammer down. He's like, no, this is not, this is, no, this, this makes no sense whatsoever in the covenant that God has made with his people. Um, this is no joking matter to him. Humanity is turned and there are grave consequences for all humanity. Those who are chosen, nation of Israel back in the Old Testament, those who are not Anybody who is not Jewish, right? Because that's the way the Old Testament kind of views it. Anybody who's not Jewish. Um, everybody is accountable for the life that they live. Every one of us accounted for, we have to be accountable for the life that we live. So in verse nine of Romans three, if you have your Bibles, please turn there and uh, we'll have it obviously on the screens. Um, but we have this in verse nine, Amazingly enough, the first time that Paul mentions the word sin in the book of Romans. Up to this point, he's been dealing with all of these, what we call sins, right? But he hasn't called it that until this moment. And there's a really important reason why he waits until now. Um, we've danced around this idea for the last two chapters, but here Paul lays it out. And what Paul does is he has this long... Uh, he, he's quoting a whole bunch of Old Testament scriptures. I'm only going to read to you the first couple of them, but he quotes a whole bunch more in this passage all around the same theme. Uh, chapter 3, verse 9 through 12 here. Uh, and this is just before he starts quoting. He says, what then? Are we better off? Certainly not, for we have already charged that Jews and Greeks alike, that's basically everybody, that's kind of how Paul is referring to it, we are all under sin just as it is written. He's referring back to the Old Testament. There is no one righteous, not even one. There is no one who understands and there's no one who seeks God. All have turned away. Together, they've become, man, a tough word, they've become worthless. There is no one who shows kindness. Remember last week, the kindness of God is what leads us uh, to repentance. There's no one who shows kindness, not even one. We are all sinners, every one of us broken with the same consequences of Adam and Eve, separated from God in exile, right? We are away from God. He is wholly other than us, holy and separate from sin uh, that we so easily get ourselves entangled with. 
Paul usually, when talking about sin in other, in other letters that he writes, he usually talks about sin as missing the mark. Um, as like, you know, you're, you're aiming, in, any, uh, any archery people in here, what's, what's an archery person called? Archerist? <laughs> I have no idea, right? Uh, so, right, you, you aim, you know, and, and try to get the arrow. That's the, the idea of sin is missing the mark. That's one of the ideas of sin. But Paul here uses sin in a different way than many of his other writings. And he says that we are, quote, under sin. And, and the way that it's written in the original Greek is basically uh, this idea of enslavement, that we are under the thumb of sin and we have no way to get out. We are mastered by sin. We are sinners to the core. We are mastered by it. No way out. We're under bondage, unable to refuse it. Sounds very familiar, right? When we, when we realize the battle that we're in. If we're lost, if we're separated from God, what are we supposed to do? How, how do we get out of this mess? Is it following the law of the Old Testament that saves us? And again, this is a lot of what Paul is talking about and dancing around in the, er, in the early church for Rome. is dealing with the Jewish understanding of the law. But is it the law that saves us? Is it the covenant sign of circumcision, which to the Jews of the day, that was it. I mean, that was the covenant sign uh, for, the, for the men who were circumcised. You were in. Nothing else you had to do. You were in. And uh, we're going to talk actually a, more, a little more about that uh, next week. Was, was this whole idea of the covenant something external? Was it a mark on us? Is it just being good and moral people? Is that how we get out from under sin? Paul reveals uh, this next answer to this in verse 20, or chapter, chapter 3, verse 21. And this answer that Paul gives is revolutionary. It's an answer that we're familiar with. I've already talked a little bit about it, but for those in the early church, this was something that absolutely shook them to the core because they're looking for the list of do's and don'ts through the law, having to measure up to that and circumcision and all of this stuff, having no way out of it, guilt and shame associated with their relationship with God because they could never measure up. And this is what we see here in chapter three, verse 21. But now, apart from the law, a righteousness of God, or the righteousness of God, which is attested by the law and the prophets, has been disclosed. So in other words, a way to be made right with God, apart from the law, or in fulfillment of the law, has been revealed. Namely, the righteousness of God through the faithfulness of Jesus Christ for all who believe. And so for those Jewish uh, uh, people in the congregation of that young church, the answer that they had been looking for was right there. No longer under the law, but now I've been set free from that. In our culture around us, we recognize that there is a, um, a tendency for the outside to look really good. I've got it all together on the outside, but on the inside is guilt and shame and unforgiveness and uh, a lack of vulnerability and a lack of truly grasping and understanding how far we have fallen because on the outside it all looks good because, look, I'm moral. I'm doing really good things. I'm, I'm going to church all the time. I'm, I'm, uh, I, I love my family, and so that's good enough, right? And Paul's dealing with that as well because it's only through Jesus Christ, that we find hope. And this is what he says, uh, for there is no distinction. And again, that distinction for Jews and Greeks, that's how Paul looks at the world. Uh, there's no distinction, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. 
Romans 3.23, please memorize that one. That is a core, core, core part of, uh, of the gospel, right? We have all sinned and we've all fallen short of the glory of God. But we often stop there and we don't hit verse 24, right? Because that seems pretty desperate in that moment, right? But here's the rest of this passage and the rest of understanding it. He says, but they, talking about uh, people who come to belief, all people, us, right? We'll put ourselves in this. For we are justified freely by his grace through redemption that is in Christ Jesus. So we're justified freely. We're, again, it's just as if we'd never sinned because Jesus now is our Lord and our Savior. We believe and trust in him, in his life. And this is what God says. God publicly displayed them at his death as the mercy seat accessible through faith. This was to demonstrate his righteousness. This is all about Jesus, folks. It all goes back to Jesus. And this is actually the first time that Paul mentions Jesus outside of the initial intro. He's, he's also danced around the answer to all of this, putting inside the, the, the early church a longing like, okay, what's next? Man, we're, we are desperate because we know that we have sinned, we've fallen short. We've got all these tendencies within us to pull ourselves away from God. What is the answer, Paul? And he gets to this point and says, I've got the answer for you and it's found in Jesus Christ. And this is the work that Jesus did on the cross the giving of himself. This is the answer for the sinfulness that we so easily embrace. It is God's grace on display for everyone to see. Not just for the elite, not just for the educated, not just for the poor. This is available for everyone who believes. In the Old Testament, there was a time once a year when the high priest, I'm gonna invite our worship team to go ahead and come on up. Um, there was once a year when the high priest would go to what was called in the temple, the Holy of Holies. And the way the temple was uh, constructed is you had the outer courts, you had the holy, right? You had, the, you had this, this holy place, which was the first part of the temple, and then kind of pushed way, way, way back behind this really thick curtain. Uh, anytime the curtain would get old, they would just add another curtain in front of it. And so this was a, a very thick curtain that was there that divided the public world from this private world of this holy of holies. Inside the holy of holies was what was called the Ark of the Covenant. Uh, think... Um, Indiana Jones, right, and uh, the, the Raiders of the Lost Ark, right, okay. So, so the Ark of the Covenant was in this, this holy place, the holy of holies, the closest place to God on earth, as the temple describes it. And at the top of the uh, Ark of the Covenant were these two angels that were there facing each other. Nobody knows exactly how it all looked. This is an artist's representation, right? But right there in the very middle of it was called the mercy seat. And that mercy seat was the place that the priest once a year would go in and take the, the blood of a sacrifice, the blood of a lamb, would go in and he would have some hyssop and he would sprinkle the blood in front of that Ark of the Covenant and then one other place he would sprinkle that blood. Right in the very center spot of that Ark of the Covenant that represented the very presence of God on earth. That's like the holiest place of all. And the blood would be, would be um, spilled right on the top of that. 
And then what we find out is in the, arch- or in the, uh, the story of the cross, right here, God refers to this as the mercy seat that's now accessible by faith to everyone. It used to be once a year by one person and that was it. Now God says, I'm opening it up for everyone. That the blood of Jesus Christ is sufficient for forgiveness for everyone. Yeah, that neighbor you don't get along with? God forgives him through the blood of Jesus Christ. That coworker that annoys you? God forgives them through the blood of Jesus Christ. That family member who gets under your skin from time to time? God forgives them because of the blood of Jesus Christ. And you, with all those internal things, all the tendencies, the things you think about when, that nobody knows, the struggles you have late at night, the struggles that you have in the morning, the addictions, all, God knows all of that. And now we have access to the Holy of Holies through the blood of Jesus Christ who forgives us entirely. Every bit of our lives forgiven. Um, it was right there at the mercy seat that the sacrifice was accepted and God granted forgiveness for the nation of Israel. And again, it's at the foot of the cross that God grants forgiveness to us for all time. Right? We are covered in the blood of Jesus Christ. We are dramatically changed by his presence in our life through the Holy Spirit. And now we live differently. There's something different about our lives. Everything has changed with Jesus. I'm going to invite you to stand to your feet. Uh, We're going to take communion here as we close out. Ephesians chapter 1, verse 7 and 8. In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of his grace that he lavished on us in all wisdom and insight. Colossians 1, 13 and 14. He delivered us from the power of darkness and transformed us to the kingdom of the Son he loves in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of our sins. Right, this is our Jesus who spilled his blood for us. If you didn't receive uh, communion coming in, yeah, thank you ushers for doing that. If you didn't do it, just make sure you raise your hand. We'd love for everybody who can uh, to have communion this morning. You see God's love and his wrath. We talked about God's wrath a couple of weeks ago. Um, God's love and wrath meet at the cross. And what we find is that God's wrath, in a strange sort of way, it's hard for us to understand, God's wrath is actually his love for us. And God meets it in the cross of Jesus Christ. I'm going to invite you to open up that first layer there and grab a hold of the wafer and hold on to. We practice open communion here, by the way, at Life Church. You don't have to be a member of Life Church, but we ask that you be a member of the family of God uh, through faith in Jesus Christ. Um, Hebrews chapter 10, one, one final verse here for us. that that I hope comes to life based on the last several weeks of messages. Maybe you've never read this part of Hebrews before, but it's really a beautiful picture of what we're talking about today. He says, therefore, brothers and sisters, since we have confidence to enter the sanctuary by the blood of Jesus. So he's referring to that holy of holies, to that, that central place. We have confidence to enter it because of the blood of Christ. By the fresh and living way that he inaugurated through us, migrated for us through the curtain, through that curtain that divided public from, uh, from private, right? Open that curtain up and says, hey, I want everybody to experience this. Um, 
that is through his flesh. And since we have a great priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a sincere heart and assurance that faith brings. Because we've had our hearts sprinkled, that picture again of the blood of Christ being poured out on our lives. We've had our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed in pure water. Let us hold unwaveringly to the hope that we confess for the one who made the promise is what? He's trustworthy. The other versions say he is faithful. And let us take thought of how to spur one another on to love and good works. Our life is not our own. We represent the most high God in the way that we live our lives. We need to encourage people that way. We're so grateful for what Jesus did on the cross in giving his life for us. And so, Lord, we are uh, grateful this day for this emblem that represents your body that was broken for us. Lord, I pray your blessing on it. And Lord, in that blessing, uh, we have freedom. In that blessing, we have healing. In that blessing, God, we have a complete and total life uh, change and transformation. You've taken us from the kingdom of darkness and you've transferred us to the kingdom of light. And Lord, I thank you that that way is found through the, uh, through the blood and the body of Jesus Christ. Lord, we love you this day in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's partake together. And Father, we're also grateful for this cup that represents your blood that was shed for us. And Lord, we recognize now just the importance of of, uh, that blood that was shed. That Lord, because of the blood of Christ, we have access to a place that we never had access to before. We have access to your very presence. And Lord, in that access, we don't have to come uh, uh, afraid We don't have to come fearful, but we come with the confidence because our hearts have been sprinkled with the blood of Christ through faith. And Lord, this cup represents that access that we have to you because of the blood that Jesus shed. So Lord, thank you for the forgiveness of our sins. Thank you for leading us to repentance. Thank you for your kindness. Thank you for your tolerance and your patience in our life. And God, we are most grateful for your faithfulness, Lord, that leads us to you. Lord, I pray your blessing upon this cup today. And uh, Lord, thank you for the freedom that we have in you. In Jesus' name, let's partake together. I'd like us to close uh, this morning just by uh, simply singing the uh, last part of that chorus. We sang it earlier. Uh, just as a declaration of our faith in him, I'm going to invite you to just lift your hands to him and uh, let's worship him. Father, we are grateful for you, grateful for your presence, Lord. Let it come alive to us that, Lord, 
you truly have forgiven us. That, Lord, we can walk in this life confidently knowing that you are with us. And that, Lord, we want to be able to represent you well. And so, Lord, help us to not only have ourselves in mind as to what freedom actually means, but, God, let it be that the freedom that we have and that we celebrate becomes an encouragement to those who have no idea who you are so that we could, Lord, be part of leading them to you, God. Because, Lord, you would like the entire world to experience the salvation of your son, Jesus Christ. So Lord, help us to do our part to represent you well. God, to lead the people of the valley to be more like you. Help us to intentionally love others. God, help us to be radically generous. And God, help us to have your word at the very center of our commitment. Lord, we love you. We praise you. And God, we give you all the glory. In Jesus' wonderful name we pray. Amen and amen. Amen. God bless you guys. Thank you so much for being here. Uh, Don't forget next week, uh, Sunday, and then this uh, Wednesday night, we have our midweek classes. God bless you guys. Thank you so much.